When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrive, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a stack on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that customer-perceived value exists only in your customer's mind, and so your job is to live in their mind before you can grow your business. Today, I am thrilled to have Julie Rain. Julie is uh, most is is in kind of a transition mode. She's looking at all kinds of new opportunities. You may have known one of her more recent gigs. Uh, you. You probably have a party city in your town. Uh, she was the chief marketing officer and chief customer experience officer at Party City. Julie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's cool to have you here. And um, we we all know the business to consumer side of Party City, but you had a business to business aspect in there too. So you aren't, um, you know, my world has been B2B since I was a puppy. Um, and so I love the consumer side customer experience because on the consumer side, everybody gets that it is about the entire experience to which, and the, the ownership experience is what feeds cross sell, upsell, resell. And, um, a lot of B2B companies think that there's a sales funnel that has a beginning and an end. And I'd love to get your perspective on what B2C businesses get that a lot of B2B businesses don't. Happy to do it. Um, yes. So we had both a, well, we had both, we had a B2C and a B2B naturally occurring business at Party City. I created a B2B2C division while I was there. I can share more about that. But I, you know, I've done this, my previous role was pure B2B2C. It was, it was a B2B business where we had to service the end customer, but we were paid by another business. And then before that, I was SAP, which was pure B2B. And I will tell you that I've been able to move between the B2B, B2C, B2B2C um, in different industries because the philosophy of thinking about Thinking of thinking about growing, transforming, turning around businesses, which is really my forte. That's what I do. Yeah. Um, is is very much based on it, your customer. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, in a consumer based business. It, your customer is still a customer, even if they're a business person. It's still it's still an individual. And I think people forget that when that when they're in B two B, they think company to company. Yes, obviously, but there's people that you have to interact with. And so understanding what motivates them is really important. Um, and and thinking about the ecosystem in the very same way is important. And so I'll I'll just take you back to my SAP experience just 
because we're talking a bit B2B, when you think about, you know, when we were thinking about, um, and I was there uh, 12 to 7, 2012 to 2017. So I was there when when we moved from on-prem to the cloud. So major changes, also major acquisitions, success factors, Ariba, Concur. I was there for all those acquisitions as well. And those acquisitions were part and parcel to the notion that there was a greater understanding that SAP needed to become more relevant to a, bride, a broader swath of customers than just the people in the CIO and CTO suites. It had You had to be relevant to the CHRO, the supply chain, the finance, the marketing, the whole broad-based, which is why a lot of those acquisitions occurred. But to do that, you had to start to, to talk to them in a different way. And so, again, looking at that end-to-end ecosystem of that customer perspective, the idea was to start to try to talk about SAP in terms of our customer's customer. So if, you know, if Sony was our customer, if Nike was our customer, if Apple's our customer, if Harley-Davidson, which was a great case study, um, was our customer, what are we going to do for Harley-Davidson that's actually going to allow them to be more successful for their customer? Because that's that's the way in. That's the way into the entire C-suite because now you're helping, you're now in the mindset of hopefully every executive at Harley-Davidson who is thinking about, What do we need to do to evolve and to optimize so that we can sell more, become more relevant to our Harley-Davidson motorcycle buyer? And we need to be thinking that way too so that we can help to offer solutions more quickly to allow that to happen. And so that never ends. If you're doing it right, that never ends because their business never ends and the cycles that they're going through are always changing. And so if we're with them, we can stay with them in lockstep and maybe even ahead of them thinking about avenues that they're not naturally thinking about. So hopefully that makes sense. And, uh, and that's a same prospect. In a yeah, ab- yeah ab- absolutely. I, you know, I had the blessing of 30 years ago um, working for a company that was all about the business results and the personal results that came about because of the business results. And so it was a customer outcome. You, if I didn't sell software, but I sold to the entire company and it was always a little bit of a mystery that software companies sold to the CI, you know, the CTO and the CIO. And the cool thing, you know, um, it, Salesforce really rocked that in, an entire industry by saying, no, we're going to sell to the functional department. We're going to sell the to the business leaders. And Here's my, I mean, and now everybody has to do that because that's the way business is done now. You have to sell to the the functional department that your software um, grows, helps, builds. And I guess, am I being cynical by saying should have been doing it all along, but the it was the switch from prem to cloud that make made everybody to realize it 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 didn't it wasn't a need that arose before you went to cloud it just became a little bit more important and a lot more necessary you know look i think that that certainly was the impetus to bring the masses along in the thinking but i can tell you you know when i initially got to um sap it was all on prem we were starting to work on the cloud but it was all on-prem. And so we began this journey even with on-prem because it didn't matter what the solution was. The idea was you've got to be able to speak to the CHRO in terms that the CHRO uses, in terms of how they think about their customer, which is an internal customer, 
you know, in, in every case. And what is that? What does that look like? And how do they better, you know, what are the struggles that they face? Oh, maybe it's a benefit struggle. Maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's truly just allowing their customer, i.e. the employee of their company to have a better broad-based view of their entire employment experience, whatever that might be. It didn't matter if that solution was in a cloud or if it was on-prem, you're still trying to help them help them see that they're not alone in the struggles that they have. There's others. And there are solutions that have been tried and tested that they could experience. And that was the digital solutions that my team put together was to help our salespeople go to a broader set of C-suite individuals with solutions that were really being shared with them, not from our perspective, but from the perspective of their peers, either in their chair or in their industry or both. Yeah. And no matter how the solution derived, where, where, where it emanated from. Yeah. Uh, I love doing that. And one of the things I love about the B2B world is that you're still trying to sell to people, but the but the social complexity of the decision, right? Now there's 6.8 people, 12 people, 15 people who are all weighing in and you can't ignore any of them. Maybe you get one, maybe Maybe you get one from no to non-object and you get the other ones on your, you know, on board, but you can't ignore anybody. And that social complexity, um, to my mind, that's endlessly frustrating, endlessly challenging and endlessly entertaining. And um, I I love the challenge. It creates a lot of job security, right? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I think that's right. Uh, You know, and I I think... Plus, you know, we're using broad-based terms of B2B. Um, And, you know, to your point about all the different people that have to be involved, it kind of flipping over SAP, I'll skip over my next one. We can come back to that. But to Party City, where you started, you know, we most people didn't realize that Party City manufactures 80% of what they sell. We wholesale it. So 40 to 50% of what you might find in Party Isles in other stores are likely sourced or manufactured from Party City. So that, and then of course, what we're better known for is the retail outlets that we have. So um, at the time, you know, I left in December uh, around 700, 750 um, retail stores. Well, the, the what's interesting is that, that that there was a B2B component there too, but a B2B business that looked very different than, for instance, the SAP business that I, oh, you know, man, yeah. talking about, it, it didn't, you still had a business model, but now you know, what we're doing is we're coming in and we're saying, okay, we're in a really narrow industry versus SAP, which was just, which was in every industry, right? So we're in a narrower industry, even if we're selling to grocery stores who have a party aisle or drug stores who have a party aisle or mom and pop shops, you know, whatever. It's still a celebration. You, you still have buyers there who are a celebration mode. So that now we're narrowed down. So then it becomes, well, how do we become, how do we help them? How do we leverage their, again, that customer cycle, when you're thinking about who that customer is, well, okay, it's helping them be smart. So the mom and pop owner or the the grocery aisle who owns the celebration, the party aisle there, whatever, you know, they have a job and they want to look good at, at home, you know, with their corporation. And they want to do that by being successful with their end consumer, the ones who are shopping those aisles. So we say, hey, as the celebration expert, nobody knows more about the celebration shopper than we do. Nobody. So let me take what we know from our B2C business. We're going to package those insights for you. 
trends, you know, habits, those kinds of things. I'm going to package it and give it to you over here and say, here's, here's things you should know. Therefore, here's a bunch of great solutions we have for you. So, so you're, you're still speaking a language to them and you're now not just selling, you're informing, you're providing value, shipping them information that they're, it's like, they're, they're, it's like candy to them. They just want to know because then they can improve their business and their aisle. Julie, I, yeah, absolutely. I love this. With with when I'm talking about my business, I you know I sell only to B two B clients. I serve only to B two B clients. But I say within B two B, there's another spectrum that I want you to know about. And one end of the spectrum is very transactional. Um, I've got a thousand salespeople, and six hundred of them are going to need a new laptop this year. Which one am I going to buy? And, <laughs> and right, and so there's there's still a B2B sale to be made. But at the uh, at the other end of the spectrum is uh, SAP, where um, those there's 21% of B2B customers, even in this, I do all my research on the internet before calling a salesperson world, 21% of all B2B customers call a salesperson in and interact with them during the understand my needs stage. Mm-hmm. And so if that salesperson walks in and says, I want to give you a demo, I want to compare, I want you to compare, I want to compare against all the other products out there. The worst. You are not responding to that customer's need at that stage. And you need to be a trusted expert seller. What you just talked about, Party City, man, it, you know, to, to somebody who looks from the outside in, that looks a lot like this year's laptop. But mm-hmm. you said, no, there is a celebration buyer and you need to be able to serve that celebration buyer. This is what they look like. This is what where they look in the shelves. This is what they look for. These are the kinds of things that they're looking for. This is the kind of displays that are going to be most successful for a celebration shopper. Let me help you make that portion of your floor space as productive as possible. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, separating yourself and being a trusted expert within what might to the uneducated eye look like a very transactional product made in China sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I, I learned (laughs) as I learned, I I learned the nuances with that, the nuance of this without knowing that that's what I was learning. When I started my career um, out of business school, I went my first job was at Ford Motor Company and um, I had several roles there, but my second role was, um, selling car- wholesaling cars to dealers. So, you know, we have to, dealers own their own dealerships, but they, you know, if they fly the Ford logo or the Lincoln Mercury at the time, because I know there's no Mercury anymore, but the Lincoln Mercury logo, they, they have to buy their product from us, the manufacturer, right? So we is, you, we send out zone managers. I was a zone manager, San Diego County and Orange County was my zone. So I had all the Lincoln Mercury dealers in that zone. And my job was every month, I got an allocation from, you know, corporate office that came to California and was broken down against our dealerships. And so here were my dealerships and I had to sell them X number of town cars, X number of, you know, Mercury tracers, God help us, you know, all these, all these cars for each dealership. And so I could go and be like, okay, dealer X, I need you to buy, here's your allocation of every nameplate. I need you to buy these. Well, unless I'm doing something to actually help them sell what they already have on the ground, you know, because they end up paying interest on what they're not selling, you know, they, oh they, gosh, they yeah. it costs them. Right. And if they're not turning them, 
they don't want to like where they when do they where do they store these cars? So I need to help them be better business people to sell what they have so that they in turn buy more from me. So you become B two B to C very very quickly because I'm like, okay, here's what the other dealers who are killing it are doing. Here's the kind of promotions they're running. Let's look at your advertising strategy. Let's look at you know I was the salesperson, but I was I was the advocate helping my dealers be successful because once they were successful. I could then wholesale them a whole bunch more cars, which made me successful. So it was already a B2C, B2B2C mindset, even though my my true business in that instance, in that particular job was B2B. And that is exactly kind of what has carried me through in terms of my thinking um, without really realizing it all the way through here. In fact, at Party City, so we talk about the B2B, you know, the B2C is pretty straightforward if you walk in. One of the things that, you know, I, I ran customer service. I ran our e-commerce business. I ran all the marketing, media insights, CRM, all that stuff. Um, you know, I had digital innovation. I In the digital innovation and the customer experience, when we roadmapped everything, we started to see and take in consumer data. We were getting a bunch of calls to our call center from other businesses. So Sky Zone, you know, where you do the indoor parachuting or yeah. Dave and Buster's. We were getting calls from them saying, hey, we, we need a bunch of balloons, plates, napkins, whatever. And it occurred to us that why they're doing that is because they're hosting birthday parties. People, like they call and they reserve a room or a space or a table or whatever because they're going to have Billy's birthday party at Dave & Buster's or Sky Zone. Well, those poor people have to come to Party City and a bakery and God knows where else to buy the stuff, to schlep it to Sky Zone or Dave & Buster's to host their party. Well, it's like, why wouldn't we just API our solution Two skies on. It can even be white labeled. We don't even need to take credit. Let's just put it there so that it's like, okay, we're going to curate an assortment of different birthday, Spider-Man, Princess, Unicorn, whatever it is. We're going to curate a bunch. And then when the customer goes to book their party on Sky Zone or Dave & Buster's, there's a link immediately. You don't even have to leave the page that's like, oh, do you want to add on, you know, table, like all your party favors and balloons. Here's here's the little princess party package. We did it. And it was, so it was a B2B, but I call it B2B2C because we were serving. So we built another division of the company by just looking at those, that customer experience and the insights. Again, it was all in a B2B mindset, but because we understand the end user better than anybody, we can actually help create B2B businesses. Yeah. You know, and so I tell my clients all the time that I don't believe there's any such thing as a commodity, you, okay. right? There is yeah, no such thing, right? right? Look at I, airlines. <laughs> yeah, just I, you don't you don't know this about me, but I sold money. I was a I was a commercial real estate lender for GE Capital, so I sold money. Uh-huh. Is there any more commodity than money? Ask any economist. What's more What's more commodity than money? And I sold my money for. I told I used to tell my boss if I can't get a 75 basis point price advantage you don't need me and my personal record was 2.75% higher than a written bid that a big sophisticated CFO was getting from somebody else I just had deal structure and prepayment points and and some things that other people couldn't do that were really valuable to a certain type of buyer. So I used to call us the world's largest niche lender because yeah. I only sold at a price premium to people who really needed my differences. Hmm. Um, 
So I cannot be convinced that there's a commodity that cannot be differentiated and price premiumed. Absolutely. Well, look right. at this. That's the whole premise of the airline business. I mean, I worked for American Airlines for a moment when I was uh, in business school. There's nothing more commoditized than a seat on an airplane. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be like, oh, it's got an extra inch. Oh, it's it's it 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 reclines another quarter of an inch. Oh, it's got you know, I mean, it's there's not much. There's not much. And so yeah. it takes a, it takes a lot. But it's a commodity and you got a lot of different you got a big price variation, you know, across the planet from plane to plane of which the majority are identical. These rows we're only going to give to our frequent flyers, so you know you won't have a baby next to you. I mean, <laughs> that's it. That's, that's right. a pretty. That's that's that, right. I will pay a premium for that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> On a long haul flight, I'll pay extra for that business class seat. Yeah. Is it really? You know, is it a better? Yeah, but it's also. You know, it's also a little bit more, you're on first, you're off first, you probably yeah. get your bag up. Like, you know, it, it's beyond the actual physical seat itself, because I mean, unless it's the lie flat ones, yeah. but I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I like that example. I also tell people gas stations, you have passed two gas stations on the same intersection across the street from each other. And my personal record is seeing 40 cents a gallon difference in yeah. in Oakland, California for two gas stations on the same intersection. Yep. Like one of them's two right-hand turns, the other one's two left-hand turns. One has cleaner bathrooms, one has better hot dogs and better coffee. But yeah. you, you'll pay, and the margin on gasoline for that low-end price, that's three cents a gallon margin. Mm -hmm. Think about the other one who's making 40 cents a gallon margin. Yep. That's, you. Mm -hmm. There's there's some EBITDA on that. There is. There is. No <laughs> doubt about it. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So you're really a marketer. I know you like to say like you're like finance pricing, but all the things you're talking about is just pure marketing. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have a marketing degree and marketing was the most fun because marketing is everything a business does. Finance is how you get the money for what you do for the interesting stuff. And accounting is how you just track it all. So mm -hmm. marketing is by far the most interesting part of business. Um, <laughs> sorry, accounting folks. Um, <laughs> um, but on that EBITDA, um, I want you to talk me off the ledge. I have a friend who uh, whines, not a whines, but he criticizes a lot of PE firms and you've got uh, some private equity experience. Mm -hmm. And he thinks that a lot of PE firms, now he talks to ones that are in a lot of software SaaS companies. Um, and he says it's all about recurring revenue, not about profitable revenue. Mm -hmm. They they just want they want a logo client on the slot on the on the PowerPoint deck. They don't care whether that client is profitable because the company they're going to flip it to after they've grown it to from X million in annual revenue, they already know who they're going to sell it to. They just have to get that revenue there, and neither of them care how profitable it is. That's the criticism. Okay, talk, so talk, I talk me off the ledge. Yeah, so I um, so just so that your listeners know my just my experience with PE and where my perspective will come from, uh, I was on the board of a PE firm, uh, a TPG growth uh, PE firm portfolio company that was in the the ride space sector. We ended up selling that company, um, 
Uh, before that, I was in, on one that was really in the ad tech space. I was on the board of a company in the ad tech space, and um, that one never that one never made a lot of money. And they were looking for more of an ARR. I'll get to that in a second. And then my other, my third PE experience was the job between where I spoke about SAP and Party City. I actually was the chief experience officer for Abra Auto Body and Glass. We own 600 collision shops, and it was Hellman and Freeman portfolio company. So that was, I worked inside of, you know, inside of a company owned by a PE firm. I can tell you in, in again, all of the instances, except for the the first one, which was the um, ad tech, it was very EBITDA. It was very EBITDA focused. We cared, it, we cared a lot about um, obviously growing the margins, growing the bottom line. Now, I I like to say that I worked for PE firms with good people who really cared about growing the business. And there are some PE firms that are sort of ruthless. And I, I, I consider them a bit more old school. You know, people can take issue with my characterizations, but they're, they're a little bit more just like we are on a clock. It's got to turn in three years. There's a number we got to hit. Here's our thesis of what we need to hit. And so we've got to hit that come hell or high water. Yeah. I know a lot of PE firms that look, you have to have a thesis, you have to have a of course, you have what what your your goal is. However, some of them see some of the the macro or microeconomic opportunities and they they will be a bit more patient on the if come because they see something happening. Um and and at the end of the day, really it is about the more margin you can show, the more the more longevity kind of going back to your friends ARR in a non-software space. Um, where you can see a returning customer uh, loyalty, those kinds of things make a difference. So, like at Abra, where I worked inside, the insurance carrier was really our part. That was that was who we made money from because when you get an accident, that's, yeah. that's who pays it, right? Now we serve the end customer, so we've got to do a great job there. Because for us, what we want to do is negotiate better rates with the insurance carrier, so we can get more margin from that. Which means that I need to convert more of those people who have claims into a repair order so they actually repair the car. People have a choice not to actually get their car repaired. So, you know, we want to get them in to repair their car. And then we want to do it in such a way where we can do it quicker, more efficiently, again, because we can make more money there. But also so that the customer is happy and they may not want to leave their insurance carrier because the majority of people who get in a car accidents, it seemed odd to me, but I guess, you know, emotionally it makes sense. They end up changing insurance carriers. I don't know why it's not like it's the insurance carrier's fault that they got in an accident, but maybe they, when push came to shove, they weren't happy. I don't know. So, well, yeah, when their rate increase came uh, in, they thought they could shop it. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you know. So what we try to do is the the happier we can make that customer, the less likely they were to switch off. So you know, when you look at at all of that within. Customers are still only going to need us once every seven years because that's when a collision, that's the frequency of a collision. So, it, you know, we're not going to get a repeat. Hope, hopefully we're not getting a repeat customer. Hopefully people are better drivers than that. But but there is a huge word of mouth because it's not something that people see or do. And so you end up asking your friends on that one. That's a big word of mouth push because there's yeah. not a lot of advertising. It makes no sense, right? So what we want to do is build build that strong customer effort score, that NPS score, all those marketing terms, because we need to make sure that that word of mouth is holding us along. And the greater our loyalty numbers there, which is a little bit of a, the soft version of an ARR, we're trying, you try to build a pool of people 
that you know are likely to be recurring or to generate that recurring on your behalf. So you as the entity have to work less, less hard to do it yeah. while you're improving operations such to such extent that you're draw you're for every, every transaction you have, you're drawing more EBITDA to yeah. the bottom. So it is the majority of businesses are EBITDA, but the ARR concept, look, if you're, if you're in a cloud subscription based, you, that's really all that matters because that's your recurring revenue. You can work on operations and make the margins better, but you need to make sure you've got a strong pipeline. But I would submit that ARR is software cloud slang for pipeline. And you need a pipeline that has margin no matter what. That's what the, the smart PE firms are doing. Yeah. When you were talking about the auto body, what, what an interesting business with an interesting set of interconnected dynamics. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we, we say it, some B2B industries, you're talking to a whole bunch of departments within one company, but within that auto body, there's two companies. I work with some construction materials companies. So there's the de- architect, the designer, the contract contractor, the, the, the general, the subs, the installers, the yep. building owner. Um, and you've got to, you've got to understand what everybody is looking for and deliver each person what they're looking for. Um, It's, it's more complex. Even we had the, you had to, we partnered with enterprise rental car because when you bring a car in, you need an alternative car. So we built a partnership with that integrated. So we had the insurance carrier, the repair, and then of course the rental car. And in the repair component are all the tentacles of, you had to have a good paint supplier. You had to have a good part supplier. I mean, massive, a massive infrastructure there. And then you had, and then there was the new complexities that were come with electric vehicles. There's all, you know, and anything that has cameras in it, there's all these new, um, you know, you had to calibrate your vehicle because any, and you're being off a quarter inch when cars are run basically with cameras. You think about a Tesla <laughs> and they're run with cameras. If you're, if you're off a quarter of an inch, you're, your car is going to hit something because you're driving basically with a camera as your yeah. guy. You're full trust in that, right? So this, there were so many. It was so complex. It wow. looked so simple, but really the ecosystem of then, and all those pieces take away, chip away at margin, yeah. and potential customer satisfaction, right? Which then hurts margin some more. So we were having to manage each one of those. That's how we we helped turn the business around. Yeah. Julie, what a great conversation. So uh, we got to wind it up, but you are in, I want to find my next cool venture mode. And you talked about the kinds of companies that you want to work for and kind of don't want to work for. You're at a stage in your life where you've come to the realization that 80% of job satisfaction is who you work with. Tell us a little bit. 9.9% of job satisfaction is who you work with. It's, you know, it's why, you know, it's like the no asshole policy. I I don't think people set out trying to be assholes. I don't think their companies do either. Um, However, there are just some company cultures that are not as, um, you know, human first. And I'm not saying everything has to be like, you know, coffee clutch in the morning and kumbaya at noon. But I'm saying it's got to be about the people first and foremost. And and working together and respecting one another and not having that cutthroat, understanding that your competition is outside of the, of the organization you work in, not inside. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's probably where I, I start first and foremost. And it's the collaborative. The other thing I, I know about myself. So I know the people life's too short to work with people that you don't love. So um, to love to be with, you know, the majority of your life, which is what work is. 
Um, the other is that I am a transformation, turnaround, suboptimization girl. I mean, that's just that's just where I thrive. It's where I add the greatest value to the companies I work for. I'm not I'm not great at companies that are already doing well and they just sort of they just need a kind of a steady as she goes, maybe improve things here and there. I like broken toys. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. One of the questions I ask with a new client, I always I always ask is tell me about a one or two change management initiatives that you've done in the past, one that went well and one that went poor. And what are you doing to make sure the next one's better? And I stop with the uh, summary question, how good is are, are your people at changing? Yeah. And it, there, you get some people saying, we aren't as good as we should be, but we're getting better that we've, you know, we've done six of them now. And number six just was easier. And we, and so um, getting people, getting organizations with the muscles to change or the desires to change, I think that's a big deal. Well, it's a super big deal. And it's the thing that I learned most. I mean, you're, you're, spot on uh, in terms of of wanting to change. That's why I, I like to go into broken toys. If if the entire company, especially the management, especially the board, the executive suite, the CEO in particular, if there's any sense that things are okay and maybe it's just a blip and if we just hang on, then that is not the company for me. Like there has to be pain. Like they have to be feeling the pain and know that they're losing, they're losing every day. The world's shifting without the, they either need to transform or turn around or or like do something drastic. Those are the companies. Yeah. Anything else, I and I have had lived through that. We you know when we talk like I've lived through that. Anything else, you go in and you think that that's what you're there to do. If there's not a hand holding at the top that that's what you want to do, you will run into brick walls and it will be it will hurt. It I'm will hurt. La I'm laughing because I got hired by a, you know, a fellow who's trying to do a change initiative in his organization. And he was, he was telling me about, I was talking to this divisional director and this initiative was going to help him. And he agreed how much it was going to help him and what it was going to do to his company and sub subsequently to his career. And he looked at me and he said, Mickey, I didn't make it here 20 years by sticking my neck out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so and that's fine. And that works right, for that it, person, right? It, it's yeah. a favor that they were honest enough to tell you. Absolutely. I I I think thank goodness. Thank you for your honesty. I appreciate no. it. We <laughs> have to know that though as it's that's so important because that would have been the worst, the the worst thing for that that individual to go into that environment thinking that they had a mantra to go do something when really nobody's heart was in it. That's yeah. the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, that's I'm a bit industry agnostic, as you can tell from my background. Um, but so I'm I'm looking for that. You know, I've been talking to a lot of PE firms because kind of by definition, if a PE firm owns a portfolio company, it's suboptimized, needs a turnaround or needs a transformation. Otherwise, why would they buy it? They don't yeah. PE firms don't typically buy companies that are like, okay, steady as she goes. We'll just, you know, they're looking to get make a a profit. And so that means they're gonna do something pretty drastic to it yeah. to do that. Yeah. So that that's sort of where I'm looking and and I'm looking beyond the CMO, kind of beyond the CXO to more of a chief commercial kind of something a bit broader because the things I've done are are broader yep. in scope. Um yep. you know, so we'll see. It's there's a lot of interesting prospects out there. Cool. How can people get a hold of you? 
Uh, well, you go to my LinkedIn. I got a LinkedIn. Um, you can email me. So it's rame.julie at Gmail. I'm happy to give out my email. It's fine. Um, don't send me spam, but you know, if you're, if you're real, real, then I'm happy to, I'm happy to have a conversation. Cool. And thanks for investing some time with us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. This was great. Thank you for having me. It's oh, yeah. Long. No problem. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means that sales, marketing, business, all of it is a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.